All right. Our new members class. We're halfway done. Halfway done. Let's see what time. Plenty of time. Halfway done. We've had three thus far. What have we talked about? Principia Theologia. First things. What did we talk about? Was anyone paying attention? What? Okay, we talked about truth. We talked about the existence of truth. Does truth exist? Yes, it does. You can't get away from it. There are things that comport with reality. Those things are true. Excellent. Just as a note, it's probably okay if you're not paying attention. That's, that's probably all right. Uh, let me explain. It's probably okay. Yeah, he's, what? It's probably okay. If you are being faithful... If you've opened your book and you saw, oh, don't forsake the gathering together of believers as some are in the habit of doing, if you read that and you're obeying it, that's a good step. It's probably better to pay attention, but if you're not, that's probably okay. I, uh, when I was going to school, co college, when I was going to college, there was a church where I fellowshipped and... Uh, I'd usually sit right next to this uh, older couple, and the, the husband would always come in, and he would always sleep through the sermon. And he, he, would, he was able to sit, you know, he'd, he'd be upright, but just snore very peacefully through the sermon, and that's, that's what he did. And if that's what you're doing, that's okay. I'll let you sleep. It's Shabbat. Okay, so we talked about truth, right? Principia Theologia 1, we talked about truth, how we understand truth, the nature of truth. Truth exists, it doesn't contradict itself, and it's only true or false, three laws of logic. What else? Don't everyone speak at once. What else? What did Philip talk about? See, they ignored you too. That's okay. That's all right. That's all right. Okay, Philip talked about the Word of God. Correct? The Word of God, the Scripture. We can trust Scripture. We have, Scripture has epistemological value. We can know that it is true. Scripture, first of all, it gives us information that we can test that information against other things. And it gives us, we have fulfilled prophecy in Scripture. So excellent reasons to trust the Scripture as the Word of God. What else? What did we talk about last week? What did we talk about last week? Okay, we talked about relationships, specifically the relationships of mankind, all right? Man's relationship to the Almighty, blessed be he. We talked about man's relationship to, to other man. We talked about man Y chromosome relationship to man X chromosome exclusive, that's woman, all right? We talked about that. We also talked about, so what, what was the nature of these relationships? How are they working today? Are they just fine? Are they exactly the way they're supposed to be? Yeah, that's a leading question, right? They're not the way they're supposed to be, right? They're broken, okay? So man, man is beautiful. Man is b'tselem Elohim. Man is in the image of God. So man is beautiful. Because man is in the image of God, man is as, as, our, the, as the, the founders of this country said, endowed by his creator with certain unalienable rights. 
We talked about how no other worldview can explain that, and they can't. Either, either God gives rights to man, or, or not. Right? Or man can choose to give other rights to man that man can then neglect as he so chooses. So these relationships, these relationships are broken. Mankind is also broken. This is a problem, right? This, this, this seems to be, this is infected. This has infected the whole world. Everywhere we look, we see, we see death, we see destruction, we see things as they are not meant to be. So it, it is reasonable to then ask, you know, the, part of Principia Theologia 1 was we said, okay, we think there's God. We think that he's a good God. We think he's all good. We think he def- his nature defines what we call good. We think that he is all-powerful. He can do anything he wants. That's not logically absurd, right? God, can't, God cannot make you a one-ended stick. That's logically absurd. There's no such thing. God cannot make, a, you know, hey, God, I want you to make me a married bachelor. No, that's not a thing. Right? But anything that power can do, God can do. So, well, if he's really good, and if he's really powerful, and if he's really super smart, like you guys say he is, he's omniscient, why couldn't he make the world in such a way as to be perfect, as to be better than it is right now? Okay? The problem of evil. And he did make the world better than it is right now. The problem of evil is not a problem for us. This book is about the problem of evil. Evil starts in chapter 3, and it doesn't get taken care of until right before the maps. But it does get taken care of. So evil... The, the, the problem of evil, philosophically, why, why didn't God make it better? He did. He made it very, very good. We understand this. Agreed? Right, so relationships. Amber's correct. Relationships. Man's relationships. Broken. 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 In rebellion, our proper relationship to the king. Broken. Broken not like there's something wrong with us physically. That's true. It's true as far as it goes. It doesn't go far enough. We need to be fixed. We need to be corrected. And that correction is not that, you know, I'm a quart low. The, connection, the, the correction is not that I've got a screw loose. The correction is that we, that mankind, is in rebellion. We are in open rebellion to the king of the universe, to the sovereign. Rebels don't need another quart of oil. Rebels don't need a screw tightened down. Rebels need a pardon or they need justice. Okay, that is, that is the true nature of the, of the problem of evil and it is being corrected. So the problem of evil is not a problem for us. Agreed? All right, so we haven't even gotten started yet. That's just what we did in, in, in the past. Right? And Zach politely informed me that uh, we're, we're getting everything started a half an hour late. So uh, hope you had a snack before you came here. Mm. Okay, let's see. So in this new members class, in Principia Theologia, 
we are trying, we as the elders, communicating this to you, we are... My handwriting is atrocious. <laughs> what I've got written here is, the concept is to accept reality. But it doesn't look like accept, it looks like occult reality. <laughs> it's just... And it... It's... Yeah, it, it, occult doesn't make sense in this context, but I have, ter I have terrible handwriting. But the, the idea is correct. The idea is correct. I'm, we are not asking, right? The, the statement of faith, and we're using faith in a specific way. Faith is the things that we believe. Faith is a list of things that we believe. The trust that we have at, at this synagogue, at the synagogue institutionally, and the trust that the universal church has is not blind, stupid, you know, I tell you to trust this so you trust it. No, we are presenting evidence. The trust that we have is based on evidence. We talked about truth. Right? We showed good reasons that truth must exist. Truth has to exist if reality exists. We talked about God. We have various reasons that we think that a creator God, the first cause, the prime mover of the universe, note that he's not in the universe, he's the prime mover that started the universe, exists. The smart money is on God banging that big bang. Or whatever, however the universe got started, the prime mover did that. Right? Smart money's on God. That we see a universe that is so well designed perfectly designed for us. Just happy coincidence, right? Yeah, happy coincidence. Go invest your life savings in the lottery. So, not a happy coincidence. It was designed. We've given reasons that you should have the same trust that we have. We've talked about epistemology. Trust is not a way of knowing. It's a way of trusting. But that trust is based on fact. There are facts that we are presenting. We are asking, we being, again, both Sharit Yisrael and the Universal Church. We want you to trust. We want you to share the trust that we have. We present facts. We're not asking for blind, stupid faith. The Almighty, blessed be He, does not ask for blind, stupid faith. He gives reason after reason after reason. Okay, so, not occult reality. The concept is to accept reality. Uh, again, I want to cite my sources. Uh, when, I, when I talk about reality, 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 uh, this is the, the, the broad outline of Principia Theologia. It comes from Greg Kokel's book, The Story of Reality. That's what we're trying to tell, that we, we want you to accept reality. I want you to look around, I want you to see things, I want you to understand them, and make decisions based on the things that you know. No blind faith. Strong, sturdy faith. Faith that is built on a rock. Uh, another source, uh, Frank Turek's Stealing from God, excellent apologetic resource. If you were going to read one book, and, and you wanted to argue for the truth of our worldview... That would be it. Okay, Dan Juster, his book, uh, Growing to Maturity. 
excellent book. It, it, it gives a very good description of disciple. This is what a disciple does. Do this. Great book. Uh, also, for this, today we're going to talk about, uh, I'll tell you what we're going to talk about in a second, but for this, uh, for this installment of Principia Theologia, uh, James White, Dr. James White, wrote a book called The Forgotten Trinity, a great, great book. And if I don't know, I've, I've always been told that Calvinists are uh, dour and have no, no passion, no sense of humor. Right? Dr. White is uh, a Calvinist, but he writes with beautiful prose. Right? If you want to see an academic concept that is the concept of the Trinity treated beautifully, please read this book. Right. Also, at I, I got it. We're a messianic synagogue. Please do not make the mistake of rejecting the stuff that non-messianic believers do. Please, that's a, that's a mistake. We want the body to be united. And we'll definitely make fun of the Calvinists. That's going to happen. And that they don't have senses of humor makes it even funnier. We're going to do that. But we're going to do it with the unity of Messiah. Amen? Okay, so... We, do, we get to do that. Just, just don't, uh, don't divide from them. You know, hug a Calvinist the next time you meet one. And why are you touching me that way? It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. <clears throat> okay, so uh, sources have been cited, right? Again, I would encourage you to read them. Uh, let, me, let me tell you a little story. So, uh, again, we're, we're trying to reality. We want reality. We want something real. We want something that is true. And that's what we're trying to do with Principia Theologia. That's the entire message. That is the entire message of both Shariti Israel and the, uh, the, the, in, the invisible universal church. We want to talk about reality. So, to talk about reality, uh, I, was, I was driving along the other day, and my daughter, Madison, asked me, who's your favorite character in The Lord of the Rings? Right, now you're thinking, oh, the Lord of the Rings is a work of fiction. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it is a work of fiction. But uh, what makes it such a great story? What makes it a great story is that it, parts of it very, very much look like reality. And that's what makes it a great story. The, uh, so I've got, on my phone somewhere, I've got this wonderful comic. You know, so uh, J.R.R. Tolkien the author of The Lord of the Rings and various other books that are in that genre. He was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. All right, so I've got this wonderful meme on my phone. I've got thousands of memes on my phone. It's jamming up the memory. So I couldn't find it for you, but take my word for it. It's there. It's got Tolkien, who Tolkien saying, if I hear the word metaphor one more time, you're leaving this room with handcuffs. Right, because Tolkien didn't like metaphor. He just said he wanted to write a good story. And then below him, he's got uh, C.S. Lewis with a very, you know, very dour and concerned look on his face. And it's got C.S. Lewis saying, if one person does not understand that the big lion is Jesus, I will set myself on fire. Uh, so <laughs> Tolkien and Lewis had different thoughts on uh, metaphor. 
right? But uh, both of their works, both of the, the entire body of their works are beautiful pictures of reality, which I, my argument is that what, that's what makes them good literature. So, uh, you know, I, I can tell you my answer, but uh, first, let's engage a little bit. Who's your favorite character in uh, The Lord of the Rings? Or we can go with uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. But if you go with Chronicles of Narnia, you have to tell me why, uh, you have to tell me why C.S. Lewis did it better than Tolkien. If... Puddle Glum? Okay, Susan? Susan's favorite? No, Susan, Susan's apostate in the end of it. Why Susan? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Susan, Puddle Glum, why Puddle Glum? I, I think that's a great answer, but why? Puddle Glum had this very dour, depressed kind of personality, always saw the negative side of things. But when, when push really came to shove, he shows the light, he shows courage, and to move past his, his weird personality and actually choose Aslan, choose Jesus, in terms of instead of the fake reality, he directed it to the light. Yep. Perfect, perfect. For, the, for those of you that didn't hear, uh, so there's, there's a scene in the silver chair in which the, uh, the, the heroes, including this, he's called a marsh wiggle, right? He's a humanoid being that uh, lives on the marshes, and he's always got a, you know, he's always saying, oh, things will turn out so terribly, I'm sure they will. So he and his human... Uh, team that are going on a mission to save the to save the prince. They are they're being drugged, right? There, there's an opiate being drugged. They're they're being drugged, and the the witch, the evil witch, she's telling them that the things that they think they know, oh, they're not really true. These are uh, these, these these are metaphor, right? Tolkien would probably hate it, right? These these are all metaphor. You've never really seen that. That's not real. Right? I'm. I'm the one that gets to determine reality. And then so this, this Marsh Wiggle, exactly as he said, this Marsh Wiggle jumps up and he makes a choice and he, he stomps out the fire that's, that's perfuming the air with these, uh, with these opiates, right? He says no to drugs. <laughs> and he stomps, and I'm pretty sure, doesn't, doesn't the book talk about how you can, instead of smelling the nice opiate, you can smell burnt Marsh Wiggle? Ugh, yeah, that's, that's gotta be bad. Right, but so, so he chooses at, at his own pain to stomp out this fire, to say no to drugs, and he says that, you know, you, you could be right. This could all be metaphor, but I choose to believe. I choose to believe in the great lion. It's, it probably is. I, I agree. It might be the best scene in... Uh, in all of Lewis's work, which is really saying something. Okay, so what makes this literature so good? Because it's kind of like reality. Right? Reality is what we want to talk about. That's what we're talking about today. So today, 
what are we going to talk about? We're trying to build, trying to build an accurate model. We want to show reality the way it really is. We've talked about other worldviews. They have significant problems, and we reject them because they don't look like reality. Our worldview looks like reality. Our worldview expresses the truth of the world that God actually made, not the world that man wants to somehow make in his own image. That's what we're going to do today. What we're going to talk about today, right, Principio Theologia, the fourth part, we're going to talk about Christ. Specifically, we're going to talk about the person and the work of Christ. So, we're going to answer these questions. We're going to answer the question, who was Jesus? Right now, the grammarians in the room are, wait a second, Jesus is alive right now. Why are you talking about him in the past tense? Okay, okay, fine. I'm, I'm talking about the historical Jesus. I, I understand that he is alive. Got it. The, the present tense would be appropriate for use. I'm going to be referencing historical documents. So we're, we're, we're talking about the Jesus that lived from approximately 5 B.C. till approximately 30 A.D. I understand that he's been resurrected. We'll get there. If I reference him in the past tense, it's because I'm referencing in our timeline things that happened in the past. So who was Jesus? We're going to talk about the person of Christ. Classically, the, when, when we talk about the person of Christ, we're, we're answering the question, who was Jesus? Uh, we'll use, perhaps we're, we'll use the word Christology, the study of Christ. So that's, that's where that word is going to come into play. We're also going to answer the question, what did he come to do? What was his mission? Classically, the work of Christ, the person and the work of Christ. This is important because deviations from this usually define a cult. A cult as in, uh, while we're on the topic of defining terms, right? Cult, lowercase c, is just an organized system of worship. We're a cult. We just don't wear robes or shave our heads, mostly. Although, bonus child, I've seen you shave, shave your head a little bit, but not, not cult in the weird way, right? Then there's capital C cult. Capital C cult is a, is a, is a dangerous... Uh, a, a dangerous deviation from, from the truth, from the truth of Ju the Judeo-Christian religion. Right, that's what we mean by capital C cult. And cults, to my knowledge, uniformly mess up either the person or the work of Christ, and usually both. Right, we need to understand this because it is important. When we talk about the work of Christ, we're going to talk about soteriology, which is the study of salvation. How is man made right with God? How is the problem of sin corrected? And this is important. This is, this is not just a matter of some weird doctrine that, you know, we're going to make fun of Dr. James White because he gets it wrong. That's, that's not what we're talking about. This is a, this is a key truth. Uh, it's part of the new members class because it is important for, uh, for, for membership in this synagogue. If you want to be in communion here, there are certain things that you need to agree with. And these are two of those things. So, the person and the work of Christ. We ready? Whew, ready, they say. Here we go. All right. To talk about the person of Christ, here's the answer. 
Christ is true man. He is true God. As true God, he exists as the second person of the Trinity. He exists, he has been revealed as the Son of God. He is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son are the three persons of the Trinity. There's one God, that is, that is one being. Within that one being, there exist co-eternally and co-equally three persons, three centers of consciousness, if you prefer. These persons are, they are in, in a perfect relationship with each other. They share perfect will. They, they do not dominate one another. Their relationship is perfect in and of its nature. Okay, that's the, that's the answer. Open your Bibles with me, please. We're going to, uh, we're, we're just going to run through this fairly quickly, but again. So key point about Yeshua, ben Yosef, me Nazareth. He is God. All right, that's weird. The, the idea that, that man, that, that a particular man was God, that's a strange idea. It bothered a lot of his contemporaries. Right? But that is, that is what the scripture teaches. That's what he said about himself. So we're going to quickly go through a, a very brief defense of the Trinity. Right? Again, if you want a long defense, please read uh, The Forgotten Trinity by James White. But right now, instead of reading James White, we're going to read Titus, uh, the work of Paul. Titus, uh, please turn to Titus, the second chapter, uh, verses 11 through 15. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one despise you. Okay, that's the gospel according to Paul, right there. Right, super quick, but again, I want to see who was paying attention. What, what do we notice about this? There should be things, right, both when we're talking about soteriology and when we're talking about the Trinity, right? Soteriology, what was soteriology? Remind me, what does that word mean? What? That's right, the study of salvation. Soteriology is the study of salvation. Soteriology relates to what? The person or the work of Christ? Which one? The work, that's right. The work of Christ is the salvation of mankind. Okay, so when we're talking about the person and the work of Christ, what do we notice about this passage? A number of things should, should, uh, should be interesting to us. If we're paying. Okay, excellent. He gave himself. Why? To redeem, right? To, to purchase back. Not to, you know, we're, we're going to talk later. 
not to show the way, not to, you know, preach love and harmony and puff, puff, pass. No, to redeem. Excellent. Thank you, Doreen. What else? Talk to me about the, uh, the, the God-man part. There, there's something in here that's, that's requiring us, right, that, that is requiring us to understand that he is God. What, what comes from this passage requiring that understanding? No? Cat got your tongue? That's right. Thank you, Gigi. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right. Any, any questions on what Paul is saying Jesus is? Great God. Okay, if this, if this, is, if this is not true, then it's utter blasphemy. Right, so we, we can't have, uh, well, Jesus was a really nice guy. He was a nice guy. That's true. Again, it's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. Jesus is God. Or, or else this book is wrong. There's, those are your two options. Okay, excellent. Thank you. All right, turn with me. So let's think about it. Maybe there's... The conspiracy theory goes way, way back. A lot of people have bought into this conspiracy theory. What if Jesus' disciples, what if Jesus was just really a good guy, but Jesus' disciples went way overboard, and they, they said that these things, right? I mean, what we just read are the words of the written word of Paul, right? Not the word of Yeshua ben Yosef Minatzeret, right? Agreed? What if, what if Paul just got it wrong? Is that possible? It's, it's logically possible, right? So let's see what let's see what Jesus said about himself. All right, eighth chapter of John. John, the Gospel according to John. John eight, verses forty-eight through fifty-nine. John eight. So, right, keep in mind epistemological value of the Gospels. These are early eyewitness sources these are good sources very very early compared to any other history that we have about anybody the gospels are far superior history to tacitus when he's talking about alexander the great tacitus lived hundreds of years after alexander the great to um to pliny talking about alexander the great we read pliny we read lives we read uh plutarch hundreds of years after Alexander the Great, but considered good history. These Gospels are written by people who knew, walked with Jesus of Nazareth. There is no historical comparison in any other uh, religious tradition to the historical quality that we have here. So, epistemological value. All right, this is what Jesus said about himself. <sighs> then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is another one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. 
Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the, the prophets are dead. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. If my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God, yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if you say, I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then the Jews said to him, excuse me, then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them. And so he passed by. All right, lots of things here. This, first of all, this is in the right context. The Jews are asking, who are you? Who do you say you are? He answers them. He's telling them who he is. And it is, so you will hear people say, well, all right, show me in this book where Jesus says, I am God, worship me. Okay, he doesn't say the words, I am God, worship me. Those aren't, those words, that phrase, not found in this book, fine. But he does say, before Abraham was, I am. Again, the grammarians in the room are, what, I am, what is it? Yeah, before Abraham existed, he existed eternally. And this is the same I am that spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu from the bush. And if you've got any question of what the Jews thought he was saying, well, they picked up rocks to throw at him. He was making a claim to divinity. That's what Jesus said about himself. Person of Christ, the God-man. He is true man, that's true. We, we in the church today don't have much of a problem arguing that he was a man. He wasn't man. He was born, he lived a human life, he was crucified, the, these things happened. He was physically true man. That is correct. There's an ancient heresy known as Gnosticism that says that, oh, well, he wasn't really a man. Everyone thought that he was, but that was just a trick. Okay. There's, there's a heresy in Islam that says he wasn't really crucified. Oh, it's just, they, it, it was made to them to appear that way. Okay, again, why? Why? Why would God trick people into thinking that Jesus was crucified and then raised from the dead? One of the, this is a great reason, by the way, a great apologetic argument against al-Islam. We have broad historical consensus saying that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And yet the Quran tells us that he really wasn't. That's why we can reject it, because it doesn't comport with reality. Anyways, back on topic. Okay, what did Jesus say about himself? Before Abraham was, I am. Abraham was looking forward to my day. God, 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 and true man. Okay, what else did Jesus say about himself? First of all, let's prep the battlefield on this a little bit. Uh, Earlier today, we talked about the difference between Hebrew and Aramaic, right? 
What kind of languages are they? They are Semitic languages. The descendants of Shem speak these languages. That's where we get the word Semitic. The, uh, you know, again, the descendants of Shem, the, the Arabs speak Arabic, similar to Hebrew. The, uh, the people in Aram, which uh, we'll usually translate as Syria or northern Iraq, they speak Aramaic. Again, a language similar to Hebrew, not Hebrew. Key point here. Uh, the stuff we're going to read next is from the book of Daniel. It is written in Aramaic because Aramaic was the language of the empire in which Daniel served, right? the uh, Chaldean Empire, and then later the Persian Empire. Both of them accepted Aramaic as a uh, <laughs> lingua franca, if you will. All right, open to the book of Daniel, please. Daniel. Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. They brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. Right, this is the Son of Man. The Son of Man in this passage is written in Aramaic that's going to be Bar Enasha. Bar Enasha. There are other places in the scriptures where you will see the term Son of Man translated. It is usually translated from the Hebrew Ben Adam. Right, when, you, when you see in the Psalms, what is the Son of Man that you take notice of him, something like that, that's Ben Adam. But Bar Anasha comes from the Aramaic text of Daniel and is a reference to this passage. Right, I saw one coming on the clouds, one like the Son of Man. Okay, so you're, there are various places in, in the Gospels, the early writings about Jesus from the people who knew him, where Yeshua references himself as the Son of Man. Now, unfortunately, the vast majority of these Gospels are written in Greek. We don't know if he was saying Bar Enasha or Ben Adam. Most likely, he was saying, in, at least in some of these cases, he was saying Bar Enasha. He was making a claim to be this one, this Son of Man, to whom is given dominion and authority, presented before the Ancient of Days, having a kingdom that will be everlasting. Right, the Son of Man is God. Not only that, but when he was on trial, what happened when he called himself the Son of Man? Well, let's find out. Again, one of these early historical, one of these source documents having epistemological value. This one called the Gospel according to Mark. Please open to Mark 14. Mark 14. I've got it marked here. <laughs> I've got it marked. <laughs> See what I did there? Mark 14, verses 61 through 64. This is at his trial. He kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Let's see how he answers. Here it comes. I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
a direct reference to Daniel's prophecy. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Now, just as a note, in, in a Tractate Sanhedrin, the, the rabbis give a description of the, uh, the, the trial as it should be held in the Sanhedrin. And the rabbis agree that a unanimous penalty is not acceptable. A unanimous agreement of guilt is not acceptable. At least one person has to disagree. And the thought there, it, it actually makes sense if you think about it. The thought there is that if all 70 members of the Sanhedrin are agreeing on something, then they've all got together and cooked up a conspiracy amongst themselves. This, this judgment was illegitimate by the rules of the Sanhedrin. Right? Nevertheless, they all condemned him worthy of death. Why did they condemn him worthy of death? Because he made a claim of divinity. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. No one comes on the clouds of heaven except God. Blessed be he. That's what our, that's what our master said. That's what we teach. God. 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 Okay, so, the person of Christ. He's true man. That's really not a, a bone of contention. He's true God. He made claims to be God. His disciples didn't hijack his message. That's what he said. All right. Now, let's dive in to the Hebrew Scriptures. Open with me to Leviticus 23. I know, I know. I've, I've always told you that we can't read Torah without reading Hebrews. Be patient with me. Hebrews is important, right? Just I'm, I'm going to summarize Hebrews because we've got to have Hebrews. We can't read Torah without Hebrews, all right? But I'm going to summarize it. The things that you see in Torah are pictures of reality. They are pictures of what God is actually doing. They're not the real thing, all right? That doesn't mean that they're not important. They are important. They're not the real thing, though. The real thing is the fulfillment in Yeshua ben Yosef Minatzeret. Okay, that's what he, the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to say. All right, so Hebrews, good. Now go with me to Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 43. Again, how does this deal, how does Leviticus deal with the person of Christ? Be patient, here it comes. And then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month will be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to Yahweh. On the first day, there will be a holy convocation. You will do no customary work on it. For seven days, you will make an offering by fire to Yahweh. And on the eighth day, you will have a holy convocation. You will offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you will do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of Yahweh, which you will proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. A burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides your vows, and besides your freewill offerings that you give to the Lord. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you will keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. There will be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. You will take for yourselves on the first day 
the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you will rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You will keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It will be a statute forever in all your generations. You will celebrate it in the seventh month. And you will dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native-born Israelites will dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. For I am the Lord your God. How does this show us the person of Christ? Right? How, how does... The, the writer of the book of Hebrews doesn't tell us, doesn't give us that answer. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, yeah, there's other things we've got to talk about. I don't have time for it right now. That's Hebrews 9.5. Look it up if you want to. Right. But so this, what is, what is the picture that this part of Torah is showing us? Right. The picture is, is this, and it's really quite simple, and it's really quite, quite beautiful. First of all, that we need to remember that when our ancestors, the children of Israel are our ancestors, regardless of your, your ethnicity, right. if, you, if you believe in the Messiah of Israel, you've been grafted on to Israel. You're part of the commonwealth of Israel. So these are our ancestors. Remember when our ancestors were wandering in the wilderness and they were living in tents, that the Almighty, blessed be He, was wandering along with them and He was living in a tent. And then, after that, He chose to dwell everything, the entire essence of the Godhead chose to dwell physically, to tabernacle in the person of Yeshua ben Yosef Minatzeret, the person of Christ. So, review. God, one what, three who's. The Father, first person of the Trinity, Yeshua, the Son, the only begotten Son, only begotten in this word means in a, in a unique and special relationship. It does not mean created. He was not created. Right? And the Spirit, the, the Ruch HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, three who's, one what. This is of vital importance. If you seek to be in communion with Sharit Yisrael or with any part of the Orthodox small o Universal Church, this is of vital importance, the person of Christ. And uh, again, I need to thank Dr. Uh, Dr. White. I'm going to read you a, uh, a quote that I found from, uh, by, by reading his book. He quotes B.B. Um, Warfield, right? because again, we can see our Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures as well as the Greek Scriptures. <coughs> We might need to just look a little bit harder, and that's okay. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber, richly furnished, but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation and here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation that follows it, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. 
Again, don't you dare, because we're Messiahia, decide that you're not going to listen to the scholars of the broader church. Don't you dare do that. You, you have missed this from B.B. Uh, Warfield, uh, one of the leading theologians of the past, uh, past century. Okay, person of Christ, done. Any questions or discussion on the person of Christ? Seeing no questions, no discussion, fine. What? One of your original um, questions that you brought up is how can we trust the disciples' account? Right. Okay. How can, how can we trust the disciples' account? Okay, uh, okay, fine. That's a good question. Let's talk about it. The, uh, there, there are a number of things about the... Let, let's start with the overall Greek scriptures. Right? First of all, historically, they are, they are very close in time when, when they were written down. And most likely when they were written down, when they were compiled, they were probably, there were probably parts of them in circulation even before that. Okay, one more time. I didn't quite understand. So, when, when you first brought up Paul's thing in Titus, you, you asked the question, how do we know that he wasn't just inflating the message that he wrote? Okay, okay, good. How do we know, how do we know that the disciples didn't do some craziness that, that Jesus would not have approved of himself? Because the two messages conflate with each other perfectly, right? Because that's an excellent question. Right? And again, it's, it's something that we need to be able to explain because people have said it, but it has no basis in the text. Jesus, about himself, the things that he said, he claimed over and over again that he was divine. He made claims of divinity when he, he allowed people to worship him. He did things that only God could do. Right? Who is this man? Doesn't he know that only God can forgive sins? Oh, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. Watch this. You, get up. Take your mat. Go away. He gets up. He takes his mat. He goes away. Right? Proof. Right? And proof that probably some people didn't accept because of the hardness of their hearts. But yes, Jesus said these things. He did these things. And his disciples did nothing but expound upon the things that he said. Excellent question. Thank you. Any other questions? Or discussion. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent point. Ooh, okay. So, excellent point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this question. I'm going to expound upon what you said. I want to tell you a story about a dear friend of mine. We've been friends since, literally since preschool. Um, he, a Mormon, right? I went to high school in uh, southeastern Idaho, 
which is Mormonville, and one, one point in time he said something. He said, I think of Jesus the same way I think of Hercules. And I thought, oh, that's weird, right? But then I figured out a little bit more what Mormonism, which is a heresy, teaches about Jesus, right? And God forgive me, I'm going to academically tell you what Mormonism teaches. Mormonism teaches that God the Father had a sexual union with Mary and conceived Jesus, all right? So Mormonism thinks exactly about Jesus what they think about Hercules, because it's the exact same story. But yes, you're exactly right. The, the claim, the Jesus of Nazareth was a first century Mitzrayi Jew, right? He, he most likely would have believed in the existence of other divine beings. What do I mean by that? Angelic beings, members of the heavenly host, former members of the heavenly host who had rebelled and who ex- had accepted praise unto themselves unjustly. Right? And that's probably what he's talking about when he quoted Psalm 82. You're exactly right. But he was not making any sort of claim to be one of them, heaven forbid. He was making a claim to be the Almighty. That was his claim, to be the perfect expression of the Almighty and to be the Almighty. You're exactly right. Thank you. Right, and yes, there, there's an exact wording fallacy, right? Just because Jesus didn't say, I'm God, worship me, he, he, made, he accepted praise to himself. He made claims to be God. Done. Question. Okay, so this is more of like an observation thing. Um, so we've already That's a good question. That's, and that's a really deep question. Okay, so the question is, everything we've been talking about is truth, 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 reality. The, we're, we're trying to sell you on this idea of reality. Why is it sometimes hard to follow the truth? Why don't we, why don't we want to, you know, why do we want to not follow the truth? Uh, I suppose there's a number of reasons for it. One of the reasons is that we're, we're not like God. We don't see the end from the beginning. We don't, we don't know what's waiting for us on the other side. Right? The, we, we are told in the scriptures that we can't imagine, you know, no eyes seen, no ears heard, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We don't even have a clue how amazing it's going to be. We know it's going to be amazing, but we... It's, it's beyond our comprehension right now. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons. Uh, another reason is that we're, we're just, we're rebels. We, we don't want to... What's that? Yeah, yeah, to, to an extent, the, the comment was, you know, we, we seek instant gratification, and that's probably true. And sometimes the the instant gratification is not what the Almighty, blessed be He, had in mind for us. Right? He, he had something else in mind for us. And, and we're, choosing, uh, we're, we're choosing to do the wrong thing. 
And, and at the end of the day, yes, it's, it's very much a choice. Very much a choice. Excellent. What's that? Right, right. We're, Doreen says we're born as rebels. I, yeah, that, that's been my experience. <laughs> Ever, I've, I've told you guys, Joe George's natural response is shut up and leave me alone. And I'm guessing that I'm not alone in that. You know, we are, there's, mankind is, is beautiful. We're in the image of God, but that image has been broken. And it needs to be repaired. Excellent questions. Yeah, absolutely. The question is, is, is that what, as, as I understand the question, is that what it means to be conformed to the likeness of Messiah? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because one of the, one of the things that will be true of us in our resurrected bodies is that uh, the, the uh, how, do, how does Paul say it? The, the corruptible will put on incorruptible. Right? Also, part of this new covenant, the, the new covenant, God says, it will not be like the old covenant, which they broke. Right? We will not, God will be with us every step of the way in the new covenant, keeping us from breaking it. That's going to be part of the amazing part of the new covenant. That's part of how we will be made like him. We will be brought into perfect compliance with his will. Good question. Any other questions? Okay, seeing no more questions. Person of Christ, done. Work of Christ. What is the work of Christ? We already read about it in Paul's letter to Titus. Uh, I want to briefly discuss what our master did not come to do. Our master did not come as an example. Okay, he did not come as an example. When, when someone uses the term, oh, well, Jesus showed the way. Uh, he showed that he is the way. I, Maybe, maybe the language is just being a little weak there. He did not come as an example. He did not come to show us how to do the right thing. Mankind is not capable of doing, or, or mankind chooses not to do the right thing. I'm, I don't even need to argue capability. Right? When, when Doreen says we're born as rebels, that's true. I don't even need to argue over whether that's original sin or whether that's choices that we all make. The fact that it is choices that we all make regardless of what we think of the concept of original sin, is actually not really relevant because we all do it wrong. Not an example, right? Uh, so again, I, because I have some experience with, uh, with uh, Mormonism, right, he did not come as an example. He did, not come to, he did not come to partially open a door that we have to open the rest of the way. No. Uh, for our... For our Muslim friends, peace be upon them. He did not come as just a prophet. He was a prophet. He was the prophet spoken of when, when Moses said that the, the Almighty, blessed be he, will send you another prophet like me. He will raise him up from among your brothers. He, he is, he was and is and continues to be that prophet. Yes, but prophecy was not his main job. And again... Anything that's ridiculous deserves ridicule. He was not a social justice warrior, okay? He did not come to teach us how to get along with 
with our friends and take care of the poor and practice diversity, inclusion, and equality, right? He did not come to do that. That doesn't mean he doesn't have things to say about proper treatment of the poor. He certainly does. It doesn't mean he, that in and of themselves that diversity is a good thing, right? Remember, the Bar Anasha, every nation, every tribe, every language is subject to him. God truly loves diversity. God does not have diversity around as, as a series of mascots to make guilty white people feel better about themselves. God has diversity because he has chosen people who want to be in his kingdom from every nation. Right? We just read it. Those people are part of the kingdom of the Bar Anasha. Every nation, including the nations that existed and were wiped out before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Every nation will be part of his kingdom. There will be saints pulled from every nation. So if you want real diversity, come to the church. If you want real diversity, bow at the feet of the Son of Man. Because you can be part of, you can really be included. All right, but that's not, that was not what he came to do. He's also not a guru. He's not a self-help guy. He's not trying to teach you about self-esteem. He came as a substitute. A substitute for what? For you. For exactly what you deserve. He came because he did not want. It is not the will of God. The scriptures tell us it's not the will of God that one man should perish. Not one man. What's the problem? Perish why? Because of sin. Sin because the wages of sin. That's what you earn. You get up early and you go to bed late earning death all the time. He came as a substitute. He didn't need to die. And remember, he said himself, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. All right, so let's see what he said about himself. What did he say about himself? Turn back to Mark. John Mark. That's why you have a Bible. That's right. It's, that's the best reason to have a Bible, so we can read about Jesus. Open to Mark 10. Mark 10, verse 35. 35 through 45. This is, I love this passage. This passage is just amazing. All right. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Write me a blank check. He said to them, now notice he doesn't say, yeah, sure, here's your blank check. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am to be baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism that I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them and said, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
Yet it should not be that way among you. But whoever desires to become great amongst you should be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be the first should be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So, there you go. The Son of Man came to serve. He did not come to be served. He came to serve, and he came to give his life a ransom for many. First of all, I'd like to note that what James and John are asking for here is a good thing. To sit at his right and his left in his kingdom. That there's, who doesn't want that? Who would not want to sit at the master's right hand? Right, we know that we are going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. He's going to say those words in front of the entire world to us. And that's going to be a great day. And that day will glorify every person here who has put trust in Jesus of Nazareth. You will be glorified. God himself will be giving you glory when he says, well done. God's going to say that you did a good job. And that's a good thing. And we should look, for, we should look forward to that. So what James and John were asking for is not, it's not a bad thing. I mean, they didn't come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I want a, I want a brand new car with at least 400 cubes under the hood. Right? That, that's not the request. They, they wanted something that is, it's a good thing. Right. And then Jesus has to explain to them how this thing really works. And he explains to them, right? I, I previously said that he's not an example. In this case, he uses himself as the example because he tells them his mission. He is worthy of coming and being served. He's worthy of that. And, and there will come a day when he will come and he will be served. Okay? But when he came this time and he had people like James and John around him, he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He tells them right there. That's what it is. Okay? If, you know... It, Maybe you've got another question. Let's see what else he says about himself. Again, in the historical documents, what is he recorded as saying? <sighs> you've all heard it before, but the more things go without saying, the more they need to be said and read and talked about. Open, please, to John. John's Gospel, the third chapter, verses 14 through 18. Uh, just before we start, you've all heard it. You've probably all got it memorized, and that's a good thing, right? For God so loved the world, right? We've all heard this. Okay, linguistic point. This could be translated and probably better translated because of the way that we've abused the language. For God loved the world thusly. Okay, it's not that God so loved the world. He's not using it as superlative. He's saying God loved the world, so he did this. All right, does that make sense? I'm not talking about, oh, I love chocolate so much. That, that's not how we're using the word. God loved the world thusly. All right, just so you know. Just uh, the rock, you know, earth. 
No, I think it's all creation. Right? All creation is groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. He is, everything we see was, first of all, was impacted by the fall. And everything we see, the, the, entire, the entire universe, Haolam, will be fixed when, when he chooses to fix it. Good question. Okay, John, third chapter, verses 14 through 18. And as Moses lifted up the serpent, these are the words of Jesus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, oh, there's that pesky term, Son of Man again, must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. All right, so that the world might be saved. That's why he came. That's what he's doing. That's why soteriology, the study of salvation, is the study of the work of Christ. That's what he came to do. Please turn with me to Leviticus. Back to Leviticus. 23, same place. All right, do, we need to, do I need to summarize Hebrews again? No? Okay, I will. Can't read Torah without reading Hebrews. Anyways, Leviticus 23, verses 4 through 8. Leviticus 23, 4 through 8. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you will proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Passover to Yahweh. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you will eat unleavened bread. On the first day you will have a holy convocation. You'll do no customary work on it. But you will offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day will be a holy convocation. You'll do no customary work on it. It is no mistake that during a Passover celebration, our master inaugurated the new covenant. Because that's what he came to do. That was his work, the work of Christ. His work was so that the judgment that was righteously ours, right? You know, we, 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 cannot, we cannot think about God. Let me take a brief excursus. We cannot think about God being good if God is not just. We, we talk about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is just wrath. We look around, we see, we see the Russians wiping out entire Ukrainian cities with artillery. This is, a, this is a war crime. Joe George would go to jail if I called in artillery on a civilian target like that. I would be, there would not be a hole deep enough and dark enough and fetid enough, as in having feces in it because no one's willing to bus sewage, there would not be a hole deep enough for me in Fort Leavenworth if I did those things. And that's not just because our government is doing something right, that's because it is morally wrong to target civilians in a time of war. That is a moral crime. It is a crime that calls out against the author of morality for justice. 
and the way we treat one another, these relationships, they are broken. And the king is justly angry. He would not be good if he was not angry. He would not be a loving God if he did not love us enough to care about the morality that we are violating. And so, yes, there is a judgment coming because he is good, because he is just, but also because he is merciful. He sent the person of Christ to do the work of Christ so that all of these crimes that we have committed, these moral crimes, can be punished because he's not good if he doesn't punish crimes. Those crimes, all of those crimes will be punished. They will either be punished at the judgment or they were punished about 2,000 years ago on a little outcropping of rock outside Jerusalem. People called it Golgotha, the place of the skull. We call it Calvary, the place of the cross. That is the work of Christ to bear the punishment, to be the Passover, so that God will pass over the sins that we have committed and instead put those sins on someone else. That is the work of Christ. Are there any questions or discussion on the work of Christ? Seeing no questions, I, I would like to leave you with the, the value the beauty of the person and work of Christ. When Jesus, when this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was with us, God was with us. The fullness of the deity dwelt in him. That's what this, this story tells us, says the fullness of the deity dwelt in him. God was with us. He was with us in a very real, in a very personal way. He became man, true man, and yet true God was with us when Jesus was with us. When he comes back, God will be with us. Okay, in a, in a very real way. Now, I, I understand that where two or three are gathered in his name, we are gathered in his name right now, that he is here with us. Right, but he, he will be with us in an, an even more full way when he returns, and he was with us in a more full way, a more beautiful way, even than what we have now. We have communion with the Spirit right now. That's true. We have, you know, we have Christ with us right now. That's true. But even more when he was with us. Right? When Jesus was suffering, God was suffering. God was suffering for us. Think about that. God, was, God is the wronged party in this whole story. And yet he made the choice to suffer for us. When we are suffering, and human suffering is very real, God knows exactly what that's like because he became a man. And when Jesus is happy with us, on that day, when we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, I understand that we're all 
we, we are sinners. And that's true. We are sinners. But he is doing the work so that I mean, he's not going to lie when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's his work, making us into a good and faithful servant. When he, when Jesus is happy with us, when our master, Yeshua HaMashiach, is happy with us, God, the very master of the universe, is happy with us. The person and the work of Christ.